Right, we're gonna, we're gonna do, so we're gonna start by summarizing what we did last time. We're gonna, then I'm gonna present my executive summary of things to look at in the text. Um, and then we're gonna just do one paragraph of one of the excellent summaries of the halacha as is that have been uh, produced, produced on the web. And I thank uh, Gabe Gross for referring me to one of them. And Barry Kornblau for posting, uh, for posting a second. And then we're gonna look, just do the footnotes for that paragraph, there are only two footnotes. Uh, we're not even gonna be able to do them comprehensively because it would take us a lot longer um, to, than an hour to do just the footnotes for that paragraph. And then we'll just try and see, I'm hoping that as we learn the sources quoted by that paragraph, that possibilities will open up that aren't presented in the paragraph. And then we'll talk about what role those possibilities would play in ordinary halakha, and then whether the introduction that we set up about the difficulty or the inapplicability of ordinary halakha to cases like this means that there's a lot more space for interpretation than there would be generally. That's going to be my argument. And therefore, that what we're doing is potentially uh, productive practically and not just intellectually. Okay, so I'm going to go back to um, sharing my screen now. Um, here we go. Okay, so last year, we talked about, uh, we presented four sources about reasons we call not to use um, what the Chassam uh, Sofa referred to as Din Torah Mamash. And we will see, right? There's, you know, maybe there's things that aren't Din Torah. There are things that are Din Torah, but not Mamash Din Torah. And then there are things that are Din Torah Mamash, right? Or Mamash, whichever way actually you want it. So the Truman Adeshin, it seemed to me the presentation, uh, right, it seemed to me the presentation was that um, collectives, work better than um, using their own organically, uh, somebody's not muted who should be. All right, collectives work better using their own organically developed customs. When, um, when not dealing with, with collectives, then you, um, then, you, then you have a somewhat stricter um, uh, scrutiny of customs and you can say some customs are illegitimate, but you can't say customs are illegitimate when you're dealing with a collective. Collectives are simply, uh, collectives are simply bound by, um, by, right, by their own customs. Okay, and I gave you the paragraph, right? There's a bias, he said, a bias towards reconciling customs uh, that we accept halakhically with what I'm calling formal halakha. Um, okay, let me some feedback in my system. I'm hearing, I'm hearing myself. Um, okay, if no one else is hearing the, um, the echo, then I'll just go on and deal with it myself. Okay. Um, so the, um, right, so here, so I gave you, those, that's my summary of the Truma Sadesh, and his, this is the key line. Um, the Chassam Sofer said that extraordinary communal situations, right, he wasn't, he wasn't talking about ordinary communal situations, so the Truma Sadesh is dealing with ordinary communal situations. The Chassam Sofer talks about extraordinary communal situations, and he said that they have to be dealt with by analogy to halachic frameworks rather than by direct application of law. He does not tell you why this is so. Okay, right, the Truma Sadesh explained why it's so. He said that if you don't, right, if you judge people in accordance with Din Torah, right, right, it will be, not be conducive to social peace if you try and impose a legal system that conflicts with the customs that have apparently worked for, uh, right, for a collective. So I'm sorry, it doesn't explain why, but he says in these extraordinary situations, and I'm generalizing them to extraordinary communal situations because that's the case he's talking about, but he doesn't explain why those, Cases are different. You could try and expand it. He says, right, everyone knows, right? 
So it's an assumption that Din Mamish was incapable of dealing with the situations, but rather you deal with it we, we call you know what it calls by you know, I, I guess loose analogy, right? Weak analogies, distant analogies. It doesn't explain why it's just an intuition. Uh, the contemporary of Usher Weiss uh, had what I think is a, uh, a more startling rationale for why there are circumstances where Pshara is better than Din, that we don't want, we don't want the law to rule, we, right? We try and push the parties to settle rather than issue a legal ruling. He said, because there are situations when there is no way to decide legally. So in such circumstances, you use, um, you use um, ethics, yosher, and pshara. Uh, and he generalized that to say that there are cases even where there could be a legal decision, but we still prefer pshara because uh, pshara is closer to yosher than law would be, and I argued, and I, um, argued as to why that might be. And then going back to Chassam Sofer, but not in his Chuvot, in a letter that's published in the Memorial War volume for him, um, he says something that I think is worth reading uh, in detail in our case. All right, again, he's dealing with um, the, um, he's, dealing with, he's dealing with a case exactly analogous to what we're talking about, which is <clears throat> the payment of wages to workers in the aftermath of a war, right? The um, Franco-Austrian War of 1809, I think one of the footnotes tells me. Um, so he says, He said that I uh, will pay my uh, hired hands. You'll see that one of the later sources um, narrows this unnecessarily. I will pay anyone who works for me. Um, let's, let's say it for now. Mishulam entirely, without any sort form of deductions. And we'll see in the outline what the possible types of deductions are. But you, whoever he's writing to, right? if you're not making decisions for yourselves, but you're functioning uh, judicially for others, so you should decide it in in a manner of compromise as opposed to letter of the law. So, you're, so, so as opposed to some sofer, who I think um, generally say he's paying all his workers, whatever, whatever they do, people who are, who are the specific case that's being brought to him, which is what about the... Um, Tutors, um, you should each pay half. Even though the, obviously no learning, no learning took place during the war. Is but I still find it very hard. Right, and this is later on in the letter. Even though I say that half half is what sounds reasonable to me. If you ask me law, I find it very hard to explain why I should take the money away from the employers. Makat Medina, because it's a category called a Makat Medina, which let's say for now means a circumstance that affects everyone across the board, as opposed to a circumstance that is specific to, to one to one or both of the parties in a to a contract. Umazal Shavebo. So Mazal we talked about as a hard concept to try and translate legally. We will try harder today, but it's. <coughs> It can't be attributed to one person or another person's fate, destiny, or luck. You can't say that it's one person's mazal um, more than another's. Al-Kain, therefore, he says, Since reasonably it seems that they are, that this is equally the, the consequence of each of them uh, in a metaphysical sense. Al-Kain, asiti pesha me ratzon shnehem 
So I decided to make a pshara, which was in consonance with each of their will. They didn't want law. They wanted an equitable compromise. And, right, and they wanted that equitable compromise to include that each of them should lose something, right? They didn't think it would be right for one party or the other to win a case like this. So that's great when that's true, but it's not always true, unfortunately. And he says, well, Din Torah lo yodati, but I don't know what the Din Torah is. Um, so that could be taken at its word as, you know, this, I just don't know what halacha is, but I think it's more likely to say is that um, I don't like what the conclusion I would have to reach if it were Din Torah. And if I had to reach Din Torah, I don't know what would happen then because I'm not accustomed to reaching Din Torah decisions that I find morally uncomfortable. So I'm very happy not to right not to make that decision. That's how I write. So these are these give you your parameters for saying that Din Torah doesn't work. Maybe we're dealing with a situation where it's um, the internal regulation of the collective and halacha there is bound by the customs, what I would, what I, um, or if you want to generalize it even more abstractly, claim the expect, the reasonable expectations of all the parties to a to a um, to a collective, as opposed to uh, abstract law imposed from outside. Uh, Sam Sofer seems to think there's something different about communal emergencies. Minchad Asher says, you know what? There's some places which the law just it's not that the law covers badly; the law just doesn't cover them. And Sam Sofer seems to think there are some places where the law covers badly, and maybe the Minchad Asher would agree with that. Okay, here is our contemporary um, Rabbi Yonah Ries, uh, who is currently the Av Beitin of the Chicago Rabbinical Council and a very dear friend, um, who uh, highly admirable, um, highly admirable uh, and tremendously learned figure, uh, says, because of the diversion views, right, and this is after his, his, uh, long, his um, full summary of the laws of uh, wage, you know, what happens to wages during this period, what is generally recommended in these situations is a spirit of compassion and compromise, given the reality that everyone is financially disadvantaged by a Makas Medina. This was the approach followed by the Chassam Sofer when he dealt with the suspension of schools in the Franco-Austrian War. Uh, so Maurice, after giving a very learned presentation of the law, adopts the position that we really want to tell people that they shouldn't follow the law in this situation. So that's a very um, interesting notion, you know, that when which, which happens, I think, very commonly in American courts, um, where people understand that legal decisions are worse, both psychologically and from a justice perspective, perhaps, than a compromise reached by the parties. And judges will recommend outlines of the of, you know, for settlement. Certainly, that's true a lot uh, in divorce cases. Um, there's also self-interest in that the courts uh, would rather spend less time dealing with, uh, with cases like that. So Rebis thinks that's the, what a Beitian should recommend, and he doesn't offer any, right, he doesn't offer any legal conclusion. Um, so you can decide for yourselves why he thinks that law is not the best approach here. The base of Vod of Lakewood um, says something that seems like the same thing as Rebis, but perhaps is different in nuance once we have seen the prior sources about the different nuanced ways in which you can um, recommend that law not be the solution here. Although strict halacha generally dictates that a party cannot be required to pay out of pocket in a matter of doubt such as this one. Okay, right? so the Bedevad doesn't say that we don't know what halacha say. They say we do know what halacha says. The halacha would say, now here we have an interesting thing. Halacha would say that there's a dispute in halacha, and when there's a dispute in halacha, the money stays where it is. 
So that would be what the right if we if we followed the um, the rules right that we call the, you know might call the meta rules of halacha the rules about how you decide options in halacha then whoever has the money wins. Nevertheless, a pshara is recommended, and then the, we quote the Chassam Sofer, um, and but he quote, they quote the Chassam Sofer in a very interesting way, um, right? That due to due to the complexity of the shaila involved, it's difficult to give a definitive ruling. So that really is intention, right? Because we would say no, right? When the matter is really complicated, so it ends up as a matter of doubt. The money stays where it is. So I think there's a lot of tension in what they're writing because I think they're probably very uncomfortable with the notion that there are areas where, where even if you would know what the halacha is, that would be the wrong thing to do. I think that, you know, and I think understandably they're uncomfortable with that. Um, so they quote the Chassam Sofer, and then he has, he personally paid his malamdim their full wages during the disclosure. So I put malamdim in, ast- in asterisk because the Chassam Sofer didn't say anything about malamdim. He said skirim. And now the base of that is dealing with a case of daycare, uh, daycare workers, that uh, you could call daycare workers milamdim, but that is not necessarily the case, depending on what age the children are in daycare. Uh, I think for infants, it's very hard to claim that they're, that they're milamdim. And milamdim, as we'll see, are for good reasons, a special case in halakha. Um, and I think for their case, it's on, you know, almost certainly true that if the Chassam Sofer had children and therefore had to hire milamdim, he would have paid them their full wages, but in terms of the general moral force of the Chassam Sofer's position, it diminishes it by saying that it's talking only about Melamdim. And then they say, as mentioned, if a person has the financial ability to continue paying the full tuition, this would be highly commendable. But then they do really interesting things. This is highly commendable, but only highly commendable assuming that the workers are being supported, right, are living paycheck to paycheck. And if you pay, offer to pay the full amount, even though it's a plausible legal position um, to workers who need the money, then he says you can take this out of your master budget. Right? So that's also a very interesting claim. Right? So now the law is recommending that you engage in a process called pshara, and the process called pshara, then the outcome of which you can, um, the, out, the outcome of which will enable you, uh, the, out, the outcome of which will enable you to, um, enable, you, enable you to say that, um, that that you that you're giving is part of your charity budget. So that's really a fascinating claim. Okay, all right. I agree entirely with uh, with Ellen that I think that there's real discomfort with the notion that, as I said. Okay, so here's my outline of the material, um, with the caveat, which is almost always a problem when you try and systematize halacha, that because halacha is obviously written by committee, um, so terms are rarely used consistently. Um, among right, um, you know, among texts across you know, centuries and vast geographic divides, etc. So to set up a categorization, it, usefully you have to use terms, but even in the Gemara, often these terms are not used consistently, uh, such as like Poel and Uman, um, right? So there are places in the Gemara where a where an Uman is called a Poel, although I don't know of any cases where a Poel is called an Uman. Okay, so the categories are um, right. The two, the two fundamental categories of workers the Talmud recognizes are people who work for time, that's what I call a po'el, and people who do piecework. Right? They're, paid, they're paid by what they produce and not by how much time they spend doing it. Right? So that's the fundamental way in which the Talmud, the Talmud thinks about it. And one of the, for me, the challenges in translating Allah into modernity 
is that there's an implicit thing behind that is that people who work for time are generally assumed to be interchangeable, um, right? Roughly what we would call in uh, now unskilled workers, although that's not exactly correct because the Talmud assumes that you can do unskilled labor with varying degrees of skills and therefore there are reasonably uh, different sal- right? It could be that different unskilled laborers will be paid uh, will be paid different um, different different rates of wages, but fundamentally, right? Fundamentally, um, if you really were translating intuitively, you would say that a poel is a blue collar worker and Numan is a white collar worker. But the problem is that our white collar workers are right work on, by time and not by piecework. Although we do have you know something sort of interestingly in terms of overtime. Uh, right where uh, right where blue collar workers have to get paid overtime, and white collar workers not necessarily in other shifts like that. But it's one of the fundamental difficulties with translating halacha through the system is that halacha hasn't really developed a divide um, that parallels modern conceptions of categories of laborers. So we still try and work with you know with these distinctions, and they don't map on very well. Within wage for time workers, we can distinguish between an at will worker, uh, right where each of you, you know, say, okay, let's work. And then the, there's no commitment on either part to, right, to keep working past any given moment. Um, right? Then there's the thing of the term contract, like work for me for today, work for me with me for this week. Uh, and that contract is binding an employer and employee in different ways. As we'll see that there is a presumption that a POEL is allowed to break their contract in, um, at any point, so, so long as they can cover up front all the costs to their, um, the employee, sorry, can break at any moment, so long as they can cover the cost to the employer. Um, but if they can't cover the cost to the employer, they have to do, right, they have to do the work themselves. Um, and maybe even, right, probably you can't even compel specific performance. We can just do is force them, sorry, right, you can force them to pay damages if they walk off the job and, the, and that, um, right, for example, in the middle of a rainy day, if you have, right, if you assume that a roofer is right if you're paying a roofer um, by the day and at one o'clock in the afternoon with you know taking half your roof off and then they say i'm sorry i have you know i i have to meet somebody i have to meet somebody for uh for for snacks for tea whatever right and your house gets ruined you know and right and there are no other roofers available to hire or the only roofers available to hire will charge you three times as much so they have to pay that um okay and then right if you have a term contract you can get paid in advance um, or you can get paid only after you've completed it. And that will also change the halacha, obviously, um, most simply in the way we've seen, which is that whoever has the money, right, possession is a certain percentage, certain non-insignificant percentage of the law. Okay. Um, now, educators are an in-between case because there is no product generally they can be paid for. You didn't usually pay educators and say, okay, I'm going to give you this much money. And when my child is capable of reading a of reading a complicated Tosfot, then you're done. However fast, however fast or slow it takes you, that's not usually the way education works. Education was usually done by time period, and yet, generally, we didn't think of educators as interchangeable, and you know, not have not having specialized skills uh, in the way we in the way other workers did. Although we didn't think of it as quite the perhaps the pre- the professionalized. Um, profession it is now. Um, so educators are an in-between case. And so basically what often happens in the later literature is you have cases about poalim, cases about umanim, 
as your precedence, but the real case is always right, is almost always going to be an educator because guess who goes to Beit Um Okay, and that's still true nowadays, right? That's why the um, except for Rabbi Reis, and that's not uh, so coincidental in terms of the sensibility. I read the Beis Vad cases are about paying tuition to from day schools and things like that because that's who they right, that's who actually comes to them for guidance in cases where there's a conflict between parties. Uh, whereas Rabbi Reis might be addressing an audience that is not so interested in figuring out how to resolve a conflict between parties, but rather to figure out um, what it is they're supposed to do. Uh, what Benjamin Friedman in Duty and Healing says is the difference between a rights and a duties-based uh, society, which is an interesting, uh, perhaps, critique of some kinds of Orthodox societies. That it, uh, right, that in a rights-based society, trying to figure, right, you're trying to figure out who, right, how to divide the pie, and in a duties-based society, you're trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. So um, Rabbi Reese is responding to a society that's interested in duty. The Beis Vod is responding to a society that is asking about rights, but that they think ought to be thinking about duties in a certain sense, and they respond that way. Okay, maybe people really were asking for that as well. That would be better. Okay, so those are, these are, right, in addition to our categories, um, there's another issue, which is a lot of the categories of, of, of the precedents will be about agriculture. So we have a chocher. A chocher is somebody who is a renter, and so they're expected to... Right, there's a certain amount they're expected to produce and give to the owner, and then they keep what's left over. Um, but obviously, a reasonable expectation, if reasonable expectations as to what the amount will be that will be left over, and so if there's grave damage, so the question is, whose expectations are uh, whose expectations um, are not going to be met? The contract is not written that they get the first X, and then they have to give the next X to the to the landlord, and then above that, right, they get to keep again. That would make life much simpler. Generally, the contract says nothing about their expectations and only talks about their obligations towards the landlord. There's a kablan. A kablan is a renter um, who, right, whose, pri- whose price is fixed in cash as opposed to in kind. And see, why should that make a difference? Um, since in general, the way they expect to get the cash would be from the produce of the field. So what difference does it make? But you'll see that it might make a difference. And then in Aris is a sharecropper who pays a percentage. That case is also fairly easy uh, because why don't we just divide it by percentage? The answer, you know, the reason again is that it might be that the Aris is expecting to feed himself. And so you're leaving him, right? So there might be an implicit expectation that the Aris gets a minimal amount. But on the other hand, who knows, right? There's always the issue. Maybe the landlord is, you know, is, you know, is, a three, you know, is really a three-year-old orphan whose support is entirely from this one field they inherited, whatever it may be. Okay. Now, what I call substance, substantive issues, which are issues that um, have to be, that uh, are in the, I was trying to get the right formulation, they're issues that you have to ask about the case whether you're functioning within halakha or not. Okay, so if there's an issue about moral responsibility overall, right, which is, right, was the, the onus, right? We're assuming here we're dealing with damage that neither party could have prevented, right? Something, an incident happened. So the issue doesn't matter if it was foreseeable by one side or the other, right, more, uh, more or less. And if it does so, right, in what way does that ability to foresee change it? So one possibility is they have a duty to inform. Um, right? And there may also be presumptions about which party, right? Maybe you have a, right, maybe, right, when we say foreseeable, it doesn't mean that you foresaw it. It might mean that just that you have a duty to foresee it, or it might be that we make a presumption that you foresee it. You'd have to present evidence that, you know, let's say, for example, that um, you 
that you're, you generally relied on the, on, on the newspaper. Right? This is an obsolete example, obviously, for the weather report, and your newspaper wasn't delivered that day, right, in pre-internet days. Um, okay, and um, then the other possibility is contractual responsibility, which is that maybe one side or the other has an obligation to explicitly stipulate. So this is a very big deal halakhically, uh, right? Which party has the burden of stipulation of that? The burden of stipulation is obviously a function of expectations, and expectations should obviously be a function of the way in which the law was decided last time as to what to stipulate. So that's a big challenge if you have no presidential cases at all. Um, and possibly there's a question, even if the contract was inevitably going to be broken, you might argue that it matters which side breaks the contract first. So that's a case that you know, we can try and think about whether that should matter. Um, let's say you know, it was obvious, no, let's say no, it was, wasn't obvious, at a certain point, the state closed down, um, the state closed down, let's say, you know, all non-essential businesses. But some workers refused to come in before the state closed, and some businesses closed before the state, right, before the state demanded it. So whichever, whichever party did it without being compelled to by the law, um, breached the contract first. So you might argue that since they breached the contract first, they are solely responsible for everything that happens thereafter, or not because it was going to happen anyway. So what difference does it make? Maybe, maybe the responsibility is different for the first day, or maybe if you think they were right to do so, or it was inevitable, so then it shouldn't affect anything at all, right? But those are the substantive issues. Okay, what about the, uh, what are possible outcomes? So possible outcomes are one side responsibility, either side. Joint responsibility, where we can, where we can measure that in various kinds of, we could do it by just dividing a 50-50, or we could use a, a model of contributory negligence, right, where we figure out to what extent is each party responsible in various ways. We can say that the employer is responsible to, play, to pay wages minus actual overall costs, right, meaning that if it, labor costs are only a certain, are only a particular part of what um, the employer expects, and the employer expects labor costs to come out of a certain amount of profit, et cetera. So if the owners are sustaining losses that, right, that even though those losses are independent of the labor costs, maybe they can deduct some of them from the, uh, right, from the labor costs. It could be that the way we've, that we allow the employers to deduct only a specific cost, which is that, um, the, right, since these workers will not, not necessarily be available to them, so they're gonna be costs in terms of, um, of recruiting new workers, and maybe they can take those costs out of the salaries of the existing workers because there's a cost to the owner of those workers having left unless they're all going to return. And that you know, depends whether the owner gave a furlough um, or not, whether, the, whether, whether the, the workers are assured of being rehired. There are all sorts of factors that could affect that. Um, there's the employer responsible for actual gain, which is that, that um, as opposed to viewing the owner as, as responsible for what they, what they owed the workers, we can say that um, right, this is a model that works in the Talmud, but it's much harder now. But if you're dealing with a, um, if you're dealing with a, um, with piecework, so you can say, look, the owner got things that are valued at X wholesale, right? So that's what the worker gave them, uh, um, right? And now the owner is expected to resell them, or maybe the right, um, but right, maybe the, the workers provided something actually to the owners, whatever they produced, and that would be challenging in cases where, you know, we have where you have workers who are managers, things like that, right? So this doesn't, that model exists, but it's challenging to apply to a multi-level um, society where the product is often not directly saleable to others. Uh, 
And then there's what we call employer responsibility kapoel batel, which is the idea that um, a significant number of people work only because they have to. And if they didn't have to, they would rather not work. So the question is, what would they, um, right? So you get, so by not, during this period, they didn't work. So, um, right, so they gained something, right? They gained not working. So you only have to pay them the difference, right? Only, right the, di- the difference between that. You don't have to, right? You have to pay them, you have to pay them what, what they lost for the difference between staying idle and their work and not the salary, uh, right? Not the salary from zero. Okay. Those are possible outcomes. Now, I think there are what I call technical issues, which means issues that play out, right? They don't relate to what's right and wrong. They relate to how you decide halakha because the legal system, apparently halakha, functions on authority issues and not just on truth issues. Um, so there are a couple of issues that make it very difficult for halakha to yield um, strict justice in complicated cases. One is we call kimli. Uh, so kimli is a principle that says that um, if there is a position that is recognized as viable halakhically, then I am entitled, right, then the person in possession of the money is entitled, um, is entitled to claim, I hold like that position. Even if in the abstract we would say, no, we would rather rule like this position than that position, but so long as that position is an acceptable position, then I can hold that way. So that's, right, that's a very, very difficult um, challenge or halacha in many substantive cases, because it means that the positions which are, you know, that very often you end up, right, just being forced by that to say, you know what, I don't get to decide the law. The only issue I get to decide is what the boundaries of legitimate legal options are. And if you have, you know, the equivalent of a rule, you know, of a ruling, let's say that um, you cannot be held liable for tax evasion, if you have an opinion from any kind of, right, from anyone who is recognized by the Bar Association, that says you don't have to pay taxes. Even if it's one lawyer, right, and, you know, and, and 99 lawyers oppose it, as long as this position is recognized as legitimate, you can impose it. So that's a grave difficulty for halacha. In order to prevent that from completely destroying the system, we have to try and find a way of limiting options. And that may mean that options in financial law in halacha, right, what's considered a legitimate option in financial law is very different than what's true in other areas of the system. The simplest way of framing it is that there uh, is a principle often invoked is that if a position didn't make it into the Shulchan Aruch in Dine Mamanot, then you can't um, right, then you can't rely on it. You can only rely on positions that are re- that are recorded in the Shulchan Aruch. So that runs into difficulties if the Shulchan Aruch is not comprehensive, wasn't aware of positions, issues like that. But you should be aware of that. That Kimli is uh, makes it extraordinarily difficult to get justice. It creates a, a very powerful incentive in favor of defendants against plaintiffs. Maybe you think that is justice, right? That's a whole separate issue. But it, but it's really hard. It's very hard to overcome. Um, right. So usually, you know, in the entire, a lot of the argument will be somebody interprets a right, a you know a position that a an acceptable but non non standard position in a way that then say I not only do I hold like that position, I hold like this interpretation of that position. And the courts have to hold whether that interpretation of that position is reasonable. But if you extend it as you should, right, to saying, right, on on formal grounds that uh, a defendant is allowed to is allowed to uh, right, a defendant succeeds if they can present themselves as following any reasonable interpretation, right, any 
reasonable interpretation of any legitimate position, you understand why um, suing in Beit Din is not necessarily a productive endeavor, and that might be a very good thing on a social level. It might, you know, it might you know, severely um, severely limit litigiousness, which is a, you know, obviously a, a major difficulty in America. Obviously, I think it is. Okay, there's a second principle, which is that halacha has a lot of um, has you know, has a lot of bias towards um, right towards keeping the money where it is, like most legal systems do. It does this through two formal categories. One is called muhzak, which uh, means that sometimes, and I think all legal systems probably have it, that possession is not quite the same thing as legally recognized possession. And if you grab something on the way into court and witnesses saw you, so right, so then that reverts the that reverses that reverses the positions, right? Which is complicated. And whoever is the muhzak, the other party has the burden of fruit, right? That's a shifting of the um, a shifting of the burden of proof. There's another concept we'll see later on called Yodo al that I want to um, save introducing to later. And obviously, right, you know, there are cases where it's not clear who has the money. Uh, for example, if I have the check, but I haven't deposited it yet. So who has the money? I have the check, I could deposit it. You could stop the check, but that means you have to do something right now. I have it, right? It just means, does that mean that you can stop me from taking the money? Or does that mean that you can get the money back, right? And that gets into a, a whole debate about what the nature of checks and credit cards, uh, right? What it, right? So you'll say, okay, I understand. If, as long as you can stop the check, you don't have the money. What if the credit card has been paid, but I still have a right to challenge it, right? So that's a whole, or a whole level in terms of trying to figure out what it is. Another category is what happens if contractually um, I was supposed to have paid, but I didn't. So can I, ben- right, can I benefit by being the Mokzak even though I became the Mokzak through an action which was wrong but it doesn't mean that I have that I obtained the money legitimately. I obtained the money legitimately, but I'm, but I have failed to. Gi- but my failure to give it over is illegitimate, right? So those are obviously issues, um, which are not germane to the direct substance of the case. They don't affect the right and wrong necessarily who should have the money, but they because they shift the burden of evidence, uh, or the burden of proof. Because they shift the burden of proof, they will have dramatic effects on the outcome. And what I'm trying to argue is that. Uh, often, unfortunately, uh, particularly as the case gets more complicated, um, halacha is almost entirely determined. You know, so issues like this, technical issues, are nine-tenths of the law, and that's a grave challenge in cases where there are really substantive moral differences, uh, moral issues, and therefore it's not likely that, uh, just, that um, those kind of technical results will yield justice. Okay, then we have issues trying to apply the precedents we have to modernity. Um, so we have, first of all, corporations, right? So corporations are not necessarily people halakhically. Asher Weiss thinks corporations are people, but um, very problematic trying to figure out what kind of people they are because they're not Jewish or not Jewish. So Asher uh, Weiss's position at this point is a very challenging one, I think. And everyone else's is equally challenging. Um, okay, the difference in teaching Torah and other professions, and you can think about all the ways in which the profession would be different both practically and because it plays a different social role. Um, the issue that uh, wages are not necessarily a zero-sum uh, result for the parties, because, for example, if you don't get your wages, you get unemployment insurance, but if you still get paid, you do. So maybe you're, you're not losing your wages, you're losing your wages minus the unemployment insurance, at least for the duration of unemployment insurance. But can you be assured of it? And as many people have pointed out, this is particularly challenging in, um, because religious institutions can exempt themselves from unemployment insurance and many... Um, many, uh, or have to exempt themselves from unemployment insurance. I think that was the issue that came up with the CMTL, that we wanted to opt in, and we were told that as 
uh, since we're incorporated as a religious institution, we're not allowed to. Um, but day schools are not day schools are not necessarily incorporated the same way. But many of them do not pay unemployment insurance. Um, we'll see that the the Talmud sort of assumes zero time to get any to get your next job. But we don't, you know, we have a very different model where we're right. And again, in the same notion, the Talmud is dealing with you know with people who queue up for construction jobs in the morning. So they're roughly interchangeable. And if you don't get one job, then you just go over to the, the next side. At least you have the same odds of having a job today as you had before, right, as you had before you were hired. But that's you know not true in a, in a system where the hiring process takes a long time. So there's an enormous opportunity cost if right if you if somebody takes away an existing job that uh, particularly if they had you know in some sense had promised it to you. Um, there is specificity of employment and contract. We'll see that that's a Right. What happens if I can't do exactly the work you assigned to me that you intended to assign to me, but the contract is written vaguely, um, so that right, so that um, in principle I could say, well, look, you know, particularly let's say if you signed a personal services contract, much as I think Halacha dislikes personal services contract, the intention right, so the contract is written. Now it happens that day school contracts are often written like this. Day school contracts say you shall teach X number of classes, and um, right and engage, you know, attend the following meetings and school sessions and da 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 da, da and any other such duties as the principal shall assign. Now, I always objected to such contracts because I claimed that they were fundamentally in violation of slavery provisions. But if you, but now we could reverse those contracts and say that at least day schools always have to pay their teachers because the teachers can make a claim. Well, you know what? Assign you whatever duties you want. There's got to be something. I can help you out. We can, we can, you know, we can update the payroll records. We can go through, you know, we, we, you know, you can send us giant piles of paper from, you know, from 60 years ago, and we can see which of them are worth, are worth, are worth doing. We can start painting the backdrop for the 2045 play, right? You can't say there's no, there's nothing to assign us to do, right? So that might help it. And then there's an issue which is not, I think, sufficiently addressed in halacha. Um, the basic principle in halacha is that a poel, but not numan, is entitled to, right? It can never be held to specific performance. They can break their contract at any point so long as that doesn't cause damage to the uh, to the employer because the Torah says you're not supposed to be slaves. And if somebody can tell you, no, you have to work for me now, that's fundamentally what slavery uh, what slavery is. But maybe that creates a weakness in the, a weakness that you can't really hold an employer responsible um, because the employer has no security. So in what sense is it really fair to give the employee that kind of security? When the employer has no security at all, the worker can walk off whenever they want. Now you can say no, the employer has the security; the worker can't 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 walk off without penalty unless there's no cost to the employer. Um, but what happens if you have somebody who is defined as a pole in the sense that they're a time worker, but they don't have the capacity to work to walk off um, because right without severe damages because we treat it as the employer loses something for every moment they're not at work regardless. So in practice. There's always there, there's always a cost to them to work to walking off. So they're not quite free in the same way. Maybe they gain privileges in exchange for their loss. Okay. So my suggestion is that once we once we claim that we're not using din Torah mamash, so then uh, right one of the the huge advantages of saying no din Torah mamash is that nobody can say kimli because right we're not using formal rules and and. Possibly, we don't have to be bound in quite the same ways as the Moshe Mechaver of Haraya. So the Moshe Mechaver of Haraya, we already saw the Chassam Sofer struggling with, right? And so one of the big things that he did in a case exactly like this was to say, I don't want to follow Din Torah because the Moshe Mechaver of Haraya is too much of a right. It's too much of a burden on justice. 
So what I'm suggesting is that ordinarily kimli means that you can't introduce novel legal positions or interpretations because that would undermine the system because if we allow novel interpretations in, then the system is paralyzed because defense attorneys, if they're you know, competent, should always be able to come up with, an inter- with a sufficiently plausible interpretation that by the rules of the system, the judge should not be able to rule against them. But if we're not using formal rules, then maybe we have space for a lot more creativity and therefore maybe we can actually go back to the sources and maybe it turns out that the sources are capable of producing more insight than the law as it has developed um, is for cases like this. Okay. Absolutely, go ahead. Um, uh, so you're talking about using Shara uh, versus Din? Um, yeah, but, I'm, but it could be imposed pshara, right? Not necessarily reaching a party. You know, what actually happens in Beitin, right, is that whenever, when, when the parties come to Beitin nowadays, um, so out in, in America, not necessarily in Israel, but in America, uh, the Beitin should not take the case unless the party signed a binding arbitration agreement. And the binding arbitration agreement in Din in America always says that the Beitin has the right to decide in accordance with Torah law or in accordance with a pshara that resembles Torah law, which is using the language of the, um, you know, sort of language of the Shrimas Hadeshin. Uh, so it could be an imposed pshara. Okay. Okay? Yep. And in America, that's what it would have to be. Okay, so here is um, Diane Yitzchak Grossman from, you know, from, who is, I think, an Israeli, an Israeli, probably, I'm not sure, on Yom on, is adapting it from his works. And here's what he said. What, what they, how they summarize it. In this article, we will consider whether parents are obligated to honor tuition commitments to schools that have temporarily closed. Um, the fundamental rule set forth by the Gemara is that if circumstances arise that prevent an employee from performing his work, he is not entitled to his wages. Okay, that's a very broad statement. Right? That in the employee-employer relationship, the, employer is not, the employee is not entitled to wages unless they did the work. The only exception to that is unless the circumstances were foreseeable by the employer, but not by the employee. Okay, it's a very high standard. Um, and in circumstances where neither of them could foresee it, or they could foresee it equally, which is almost certainly the case in, uh, you know, in, the, in the coronavirus issue, uh, then, um, right, then the employee has no rights at all. Um, we could talk about at what point it becomes foreseeable, presumably it's at the moment of contract. And why should, you know, we're all human beings, we have no, right, why should one party have access to more information than the other. This principle is explicitly applied by the post scheme to the case of a parent who hired a tutor for his son and the child fell ill or died, Rahman al-Islam. The tutor is not entitled to his, his wages unless the child's illness is a frequent occurrence and thus foreseeable to the parent, but the tutor was unfamiliar with the child's condition. So this is a, a very interesting analogy, that the assumption that children who are sickly will remain so, uh, that being sickly also increases the odds, increases the odds of death, and uh, right, right. And how do we know what the what the tutor is familiar with or not, and what information the tutor should accept? This is a very interesting uh, interesting extension. Okay, here are our footnotes. Our footnotes are the Gemara and the Torah and Shulchan Aruch on the one hand, um, right? That's for the basic law, and then for the application, our footnotes are the Rav Yah, the Marami Rottenberg, cited in the Rush and the Mordechai. Um, and the tour, and then we tell you, ah, this is a normative halacha, but there are dissenting views, uh, because Rabbi Yoel claims that, the, that if the child dies, the tutor does get the wages, and Maram ruled that way before changing his mind, and then we have extensive discussions, so we have to figure out like, you know, what the halacha does with all those dissenting views. 
um, looking at this is, you know, for me, the obvious opening. I don't think we're gonna have time to get there in the end. Uh, so maybe we'll find uh, an occasion to do one more of these next week. I don't know. Um, that when you say the Rav Yon, the, 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 the Rav Yon, the Marami Rottenberg. So the Marami Rottenberg is always quoted in hundreds of places. And so his positions are ambiguous. And that's even I mean, when you discover that allegations that he changed his mind. So then you should get very suspicious about what he actually said. And as for the Rav Yon quoted in the Rush, well, we have the Rav Yon. So why are we using the version quoted in the Rush as opposed to the actual version? So the answer is, if you're doing the normal, the normal rules of halakha, so if he, were, if he wasn't quoted in the Rush, then he wouldn't have made it into the Tur, because the Tur is the Rosh's son. So his position in the tradition is the position quoted by the Rush. But if we're um, going back to primary sources, and we think we can do that because we're living in Kimle, then it pays to look at the Rav Yon and see what the Rav Yon himself said. Okay, now this is, I think this presentation is uh, an accurate description of the way Dayanim today understand the past, right? If so, if you were walking into a standard Beitin where, you know, with Dayanim who, um, who, you know, get a, a reasonable volume of cases, then you should expect them to rule this way. And, and a community that goes to such Beitin, there would be a justice issue if they did not understand the sources this way, I think. But it's not obvious to me that's what they mean. And we have freedom, so let's go and see what the sources actually mean in uh, what time we have remaining. So here's the tour. The tour says, um, If you, um, here I would just say, I'll probably ask you things, so please be prepared to chime in. If you hire a, a worker to, uh, right, to uh, dig in a field, right, it's really you're accomplishing something agricultural thereby. And then it rains at night, so that um, right, so that there's nothing you can do. There's no point in working on the land. Your your work has now become pointless or even impossible because you can't dig holes. The holes won't stay, I guess, right? Because they'll they'll just collapse again. So now, what does halacha depend on? If the employer showed the employee the field the night before, then it's the employee's responsibility. Why? The kevan because since the employee saw the field. So he knows that if it rains, it doesn't pay to dig in it. Okay, so the employee should not have shown up for work. So this is a very different kind of um, kind of standard, right? What it seems to suggest is that the reason that the employer knows uh, the employer doesn't owe anything isn't because the employer is blameless, it's because the employee is blamed because the employee should not have shown up for work here. He should have shown up for work elsewhere. Right? He has no claim on the employer because he only showed up because he wanted to get paid based on the commitment rather than go find work elsewhere or he wanted the, he wanted the absolute um, confidence of having work, of, having work um, of getting paid as opposed to looking for work elsewhere. And that is his own responsibility, not the, right? Why should the employer be held responsibility, be held responsible if the employee wasted his own time by showing up? Okay, this is obviously circular because the employee has every reason to show up if he thinks the court will give him the money, but okay. If the employer didn't show him the work previously, then he gives him his charok, his kifoel um, batel, right, as we explained, right, you know, the, what, right, the amount he's being paid extra to work as opposed to sit still, um, from his perspective. 
And he should have told him not to show up. Okay, so that raises questions. What if the employer has no access to the employee? Does it mean the employer has to be there first thing in the morning and wave him away? What if that's already too late for him to get other jobs, right? So this, to me, sets up a much more complicated standard than the notion that employees have no right to their wages unless they did the work. It seems to me that there, right, that there's you know, very clear cases where they do, um, right? Which is if uh, if the any time where the employer breached a duty, um, or any time where by the time the information is useful to them, they are no longer capable of finding equivalent work. So that's a very different standard for our cases where um, it's not all clear what employers' duties are. But it's also not clear that employees have any option at all. And it's obviously going to be different in a case where there is no possibility. If this is the standard, so what if the employees have no possibility of getting other work? And on the other hand, here it's not clear that the owners sustained a loss. The owners just, you know, the only loss the owners would sustain is paying the wages. Just the work can't be done, which is not the same thing as saying that there's an ongoing loss. Okay, the Rambam writes. Um, in Biker Balabayit Malachtomi Ba'erev, if the if the uh, owner checked out his work for the evening before, So the Rambam is a very different perspective. It's not a question of whether the employee's time has been has been wasted unnecessarily. Right? He doesn't frame it on that. He frames it entirely on whether there is a a breach by the um, by the by the owner. Right? If the owner checked out the land, and the owner did everything reasonable to know in advance, so as opposed to the first position, which says that the re- key moment is the key moment is in the morning, right, should the employee have been prevented from coming, the Ramah says, look, if he checked out at night, then what more could he have done? It's not focused on the employee, it's focused on the employer. On the other end, if the employer, right, had breached a duty, not a duty of, of not conveying knowledge, but a duty of not obtaining knowledge, which, and the the um, the employee is entitled to the right to a to a presumption that the employer will know everything that needs to be known, and will convey, and will convey the information to him. So since he didn't check it out, and the Ramah writes the same thing as well, the Kevin Pasha, because the employer did not fulfill their responsibility to know whether the contract would be reasonable the next day, so the employer is responsible because the employer has breached the duty. Right. So these are. I think two radically different conceptions as opposed to a single conception. And neither of them uh, are perfectly compatible with the opening uh, first sentence. But it turns out that life is uh, a lot more complicated than this because there's a whole set of other cases. So this was the case uh, where you're hired to dig. Another case is what happens if you hire um, an employee to irrigate, right? You hire him to, uh, to water your field from a, uh, from a canal and the canal or from a wadi, whatever it is, and, and the stream stops giving water. So then we have to check it out, right? If it turns out, if it's an unusual occurrence for this well or whatever, or, water, or stream, whatever it is, to dry up, or if it happens on occasionally, and the worker knows that it happens occasionally, then the worker loses, and the owner gives him nothing, even though the owner knows it as well, because we presume that the worker in the, right, that the worker's wages price in, this is the way I'm translating it, then the workers price the workers' wages priced in the risk that there would be no work. But if the owner, but if the worker has no way of knowing about the risk, and the owner knows the risk, then he has to pay him. 
right? I would argue right, that the reason for that is that the, all right, that there was a, um, there was an inequity in the initial circumstances of the negotiation. Um, okay. So the Olam, right? So it works out that the owner only pays if he knows and the worker doesn't. But, you know, again, from a, a modern economics perspective, that's because if they both have information, then the right then that information is priced into the is priced into the wage and if they both don't know then um the at least the bargaining was fair so that we already got um right right and then he says so i think adds something here as well i'm sorry in the end i guess i'm lecturing more than i expected um i think means something different than most of comes from a uh, a mishnah which says that in many employee-employer relationships, the governing uh, the governing law is the local custom, uh, right? What I think in unions is now called the community standard, uh, community standard wages. Although obviously there could be conflicts about what's the finest community standard, and any party which seeks to change, right, which seeks to to create a contractual uh, an element of a contract which differs from community standards. They are on. They 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 are uh, uh, right? They have they have the losing end in negotiation, which means that the, that they're the ones who have to explicitly stipulate and get their stipulation accepted by the other parties. Yadama means that not only once the case comes to court do we say that whoever has the money wins, but also when the case comes to court and the issue is which party should have stipulated. So the work. So in cases of equal information, we right, we impose the burden on the worker to issue stipulations that are not universally acknowledged. Okay. So therefore, uh, right, we say the only cases in this right. So everybody say if you're hired to be a uh, to be a um, a waterer, and then it rains at night, so that watering is no longer necessary, they don't pay them at all because that, right because each neither side had any way of knowing. That it would rain. That it would rain that much more than the other, and similarly, if it rains at midday, right? There's nothing. Right, there's nothing that um, that either party has that makes the legitimate the original negotiation illegitimate. But this, he says, if the um, if the river rises and waters his field, so then the owner loses and he has to pay him because he knows that his field can do this, and therefore, since there is an uh, I'm not using the right word an inequity inequity of information, that's not the right term. Inequality of information, whatever it may be, I'm not using the right term. Therefore, that shifts the burden to the all right, to the employer, and the employer has the burden of making the condition. Okay, so now that's a much more complicated um, model for us, right? So now we can talk about, it's not necessarily that it depends on whether the workers were paid in advance or not, whether they should have been paid in advance or not, which would even a huge example advantage for the, for the employers. The question is, who has the obligation to stipulate in the contract what will happen if there is a pandemic? And so that's a right. So that is a um, that's a profoundly challenging question, but it's a really useful question trying to figure out how we can um, get there. When these halachas show up in the Shulchan Aruch, uh, so firstly, interesting enough, the Shulchan Aruch reverses the order, and that might or may not be significant, in which he presents the um, the cases, um, and then, but here we have you know, interesting because here we have two parties. We have the um, the, the mechaber and then the ramah, and you have to try and figure out is the ramah presenting an alternate position, or is the ramah presenting a um, right 
there's an expansion of the existing positions. Um, okay, so, but the Ramah, so Ramah takes these cases and he extends them to other kinds of cases. First of all, he tells you, well, this is not the place to look for what happens in Makat Medina. You might think of Makat Medina, right, you know, universal, universal phenomenon is just the same as any other case where neither party had, 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 had knowledge the other one didn't, but that's not true, he says. Makat Medina is a completely different halacha. So that's also an interesting question, and why? And then he tells you that, you know what, the models I have here are, employee, are employer-employee, but employer-employee can be extended to lots of other cases. For example, interestingly, the, a landlord is the employee for these purposes, because the landlord is the one getting paid for the service of providing the space. So that's a really interesting question, you know, as to how we conceive of, so employees are still employees, but our financial system is much more complicated. And is this really, is it really as simple as, as paid or payer? Or are there lots of other ways in which we can try and figure out who is the poel and who is the balabayit in modern, um, in modern cases? As for example, um, the Bezvad says, you know, that there, uh, a position put out by the Bezvad said, all this is only true um, in the abstract because we're treating the contract as if it were directly between the parents and the daycare workers. But actually the contract is between the parents and the school. And then the school is a second contract with the workers. And maybe that changes everything because the school is the employee with regard to the parents, but the employer with regard to the workers. And, but they're really the same, it's really the same um, contract. So what are we supposed to do about that? Um, okay, what about death, right? So death is not necessarily the same thing as, um, same thing as illness, um, right, which, right? But here is an interesting claim that death is the same as illness, and therefore the landlord had the burden of stipulation because the landlord is like the employee and not the employer. So that's a radical shift toward tenant power, if you want. But on the other hand, people disagree with that. So in practice, that would be useless. If we follow Din Torah, we don't have to follow Din Torah here. So we have lots of room here. Um, okay. A wholly different perspective is offered by the, um, the Shulchan Aruch presenting the same case, um, right, offers a whole new argument. If the river comes, then you pay the workers entirely. Why? Min ha-shomayim nistayu. So sometimes we can say, you know, right, because we, it turns out that the river case is, the river case for watering is different than the, um, is different than the well digging case with the rain. And the well digging case in the rain is not that the work was done. What happened is that the work became, un, right, the work became undoable. But here, the work was done, just the employees are no longer necessary. So the work is done, but the employees are necessary, says the Shulchan then, even if both parties had equal knowledge in, in advance, you do have to pay, because guess what? God likes them. Right? So, you know, so that raises, you know, that's a wholly different model for thinking about um, how you write about issues, um, issues like that. Okay, um, right, the Shulchan Aruch actually has Makat Medina. And it is 4.02, so we're not actually going to get to do, I fear, uh, the rush and the Maharam. Um, suffice it to say, right, you know, shorthand, that the, um, that the rush and the Maharam are much more complicated than presented in this case. It's not clear that every issue is talking about, uh, that every issue is talking about, um, about just about uh, Milamdim, but, but some things are unique to Milamdim. For example, we assume, or at least some people assume that Milamdim would not rather have nothing to do with that they prefer to work than not to work. Um, so there's no deduction, there's no deduction for cases like this, but this is a matter of great of grave controversy. There's a debate as to 
under what circumstances do you see, right, do you create the claim that where, where, can somebody claim, well, I show up to work, you didn't just let, you just didn't let me do it, right? So what happens in a government shutdown, if the government directs the employer to close, but the employee is willing to come in anyway, can, right, is that a viable claim that the employee says, you know, if the, right, if you let me in, I would, right, I would, uh, I would come in, you're just not letting me in, now you're telling me, you're not letting me in because the government didn't tell you to, but the government didn't tell me not to go, the government told you not to let me in. If the, right, and you know, for example, I have to know that um, that uh, my daughter's fiance is in a circumstance where um, it might very well have been an excellent idea for the government to tell his employer to shut the right to shut the work down several weeks in advance of when they finally did. Um, but so long as the employer stayed open, he came in. So that demonstrates right that he was willing to come in. Um, even though it was probably, you know, unwise of him, perhaps from a health perspective, to do so. So maybe in that case, it's obvious that the um, that the employer is liable, right? So those are all models that are not mentioned in that in that paragraph, which I think can emerge from here. The most interesting one, the creative one for me, is the relationship between the right to breach the contract and the obligation to stipulate. Uh, right? It seems it seems you know, sort of a reasonable claim that the that the that the way in which we create an equitable halakhic system is by saying that um, because workers have the right to breach the country any time, therefore they have the burden of stipulation under most circumstances. But what happens if you have an employee who is defined as not having the right to breach the contract without penalty because their work is universally understood as imposing costs on the owner if they leave? Which um, is which we'll see that you know the medievals argued that was true about a milamed. So uh, an argument that um, Rabbi Michael Broyd uh, taught me this years ago, and I think that it was wise, apparently said that there was a dispute between Justice Alone and uh, Rabbi Rachman, where Justice Alone s- said that the, what you try and do with halakha in the Israeli legal system is we'll try and stick whatever halakha we can into the legal system so we can get this deal, in, this language in here, we'll get this language in here, and so we're trying to get as much halakha as we can into the legal system. And Rabbi Rachman said halakha functions holistically so if you take little pieces of halacha out and put them into a different system, as opposed to creating justice, they might enhance injustice because they're not right. Because because law is a system of checks and of you know checks and balances among the parties. Um, so what I think that the the interpretations that determine wage you know, that connect the issue of whether you owe wages to the question of the right of the worker to breach the contract. So then right we have a much more complicated notions of under what circumstances you can and can't breach contracts. And it depends very much on the profession and the circumstances, um, right? And we could talk about whether you're subject to the Wagner Act, whether you can strike, whether you can't strike. Also, right? So I think that that might also provide a much more sophisticated uh, framework for thinking about these issues than happen if all you can do is apply the precedents in exactly the way that they were um, applied before, which again, I think is what you have to do if you're in a system where the expectations are determined by the law and your job is governed by expectations, but here we have a bunch of reasons that you can't judge in accordance with expectations. One is that there is very little background, in, you know, there just isn't enough precedent in halacha anyway. And two is you have a whole set of figures that say that law, that law is the wrong framework for expectations here anyway. So I think there's room for a much more creative endeavor to think about um, what halacha might or might not be able to say um, about cases like this. Okay. Um, so now is a good time if you have questions. Um, I'm sorry, you know, again, that 
time-wise, there wasn't there. It just didn't work out to have discussions on the really um, fascinating other texts that um, that we didn't get to. Uh, and so I'll think about it. As of now, I'm not planning any shurim um, between now and and Pesach, and focusing much more on um, writing. If you haven't seen my the Times of Israel piece I put out uh, this morning, I strongly encourage you to. Although it, it will probably also be the the um, the director this week. Um, but perhaps I'll think of one. And meanwhile, I'll take questions on this, and I'm always happy to take questions by email, which I'm glad that some of you have been sending after the share. Uh, so are there questions it, now? Yes, yeah, guys. Ellen. Hi. Isn't there some distinction to be made between common contingencies and far-out contingencies and where the boundary is is a whole other question, but like nobody, nobody, is, nobody ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, that's for you, right? But I mean, you know, if the kid is sickly and can't and doesn't show up, you know, half the days, or you know, it rains in the in May, so maybe you could expect it would rain on the day you're supposed to go and dig the hole. But pandemics are not in this category. Yeah, so I think that or earthquakes know, even, except right. in some places. In some places where you know where there's, uh, yeah, I think the question is whether Makat Medina. Is defined solely by its effects, meaning that it you know that it affects the entire country, whether it also includes the notion of an unexpected, right, of being unexpected and radically unexpected, utterly unforeseeable. Um, we'll see that there's no. One... You don't think that a drought in California is is a Makat Medina? Makat Medina doesn't doesn't Makat Medina have more to do with how widespread it is than? Well, that's what I'm not sure. Right, it might be that if it's expected that you can't treat it as a Makat Medina, that's just priced into the contracts. It might be a wholly different, it might be a wholly different, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not obvious to me. There is one interesting, you know, one thing I really would have loved to get to, um, which is, right, you know, part of the things about a Makat Medina is that it does no good for the worker to break the contract because there is no other work. Um, so I think, I think that also plays into it. Um, but, you know, the standards, and we could talk, you know, in a different context. I talk about in terms of the question of whether, uh, which, you know, which comes up, you know, where I know more about is, you know, in Aguna, in a, in Aguna cases. Um, so, you know, there's sort of this, there's a sort of, a, you know, a delicate, complicated notion because there's this, up to a certain point, there's a, we say that it's obvious what the expectations of the parties are. And then there are things that are a little bit more, that are less expected than that. And there we say, okay, they're less expected than that, but it's still, but they're still foreseeable and therefore you have an obligation to stipulate. And then there are things which are so unexpected that we can't even say there was an obligation to stipulate because no one even thinks about that. So if you have a model, which is the model I think that, the, um, that we, we, showed, we saw some of the text work with, that the core issue is whether there was an obligation to stipulate or not. So then you're right that, that extremely unlikely things, so unlikely that nobody would ever bother to stipulate would have a different halakha than things that are just unlikely where we could impose an obligation to stipulate. Absolutely true. Uh, this is off topic. It's Jerry. Uh, should I stop recording you? then? Yeah, I'll stop recording then. Excellent. Okay, go. Yeah. Uh, have you or will you give a shear 